Hello, you're listening to the Thrive Podcast, talking to people working with water, land and ecosystems to make a sustainable food future. Today, we bring you another episode recorded at World Water Week in Stockholm, where people gather every year to discuss all aspects of water. One of the abiding topics is the whole question of water rights, who gets what and what they can do with it. And that's what we're going to hear about. Before that, though, let's start with some statistics on large-scale leasing of agricultural land. According to the World Watch Institute, in the past 15 years, land about the size of Japan, 36 million hectares, has been bought or leased by foreign entities, most of it for agriculture. And what's that got to do with water rights? When you set out to lease land, you are indirectly leasing water as well. Timothy Williams is Director for Africa at IMI, the International Water Management Institute, which leads the Water, Land and Ecosystems Research Program of CGIAR. He and his colleagues have been studying the implications of large-scale land acquisitions in sub-Saharan Africa. What we found out is that in most cases, investors as well as land owners, be it the states or private families, talk first and foremost about the land itself without referring to the way the water resources will be exploited as part of their cultural production. And in a sense, this creates all sorts of problems. It creates problems for other water users because if a large multinational company comes in, leases about 100,000 hectares and produce a water-thirsty crop like rice or sugarcane on that land, obviously the amount of water extraction and withdrawal will be huge and that will have consequences for other small-scale users in the basins. So that's why it's important that as land leases are being considered at the outset, it's also very important to take into consideration how water is going to be utilised. Why, though? You can't actually grow anything without water, so why is it that water isn't part of the contract to lease land? Because water is not considered as an economic good, uh, it's supposed to be free and is always available. So people tend to overlook that, whereas land is pretty quantifiable thing. And you can say, OK, I have this hectare of land, but you don't even know the amount of water available uh, underneath that land. So it tends to be forgotten and, and neglected. That's one area in which water rights are being forgotten and neglected. And we'll come back to large-scale land acquisition. But there was another event in Stockholm that seems to have forgotten about some aspects of water rights, a discussion of a report on water for food security and nutrition prepared by the high-level panel of experts for the UN's Committee on World Food Security. Alan Nichol, theme leader on governance, gender and poverty at IMI, is very familiar with the report, and he summarised its message on water and food security. And the report's really trying to say... You know, there are ways and means we can address this issue. Uh, we can produce more food, but we need to produce it in a more equitable, 
manner. We need to increase our attention to um, poverty reduction within this process. We need to improve the, the governance of resources. We need to increase the capacity to produce without impacting on ecosystems detrimentally. I think the report has contributed to the debate. In some ways, it's a wish list. So Alan Nicol is impressed? Impressed and slightly disappointed at the same time because I was actually a peer reviewer for the first draft and I did actually, uh, I kind of focused on some of the, the, the shortcomings of that report. And they're still there to some extent. Some of them are addressed, but the report has a slightly uh, linear causality approach to the issues. It's, it's almost saying, you know, manage the resources effectively and we can get over this problem. So understanding how the political economy of the food markets and systems and trade systems globally drives demand for water and unpacking that a little bit more and saying well we have to tweak these systems in order to overcome some of the major challenges um, on food on water supplies for instance you know the trade-offs between agricultural water use domestic water supplies groundwater abstraction groundwater depletion water quality impacts ecosystem impacts etc all of which is crucially bound up in water rights who gets what and how do they use it and a new kind of water right, at least to me. Embedded in the report is a discussion of the right to water for food production. Where is that idea in this bigger picture? And why has it been slightly shunted aside when it could be a really important contribution to global debates? Okay, making a right isn't an easy thing to do. It creates an enormous amount of concern about those who maybe have to carry the duty of, of that right, governments particularly. You know, the statement made is, is very important because it's got a very pro-poor, um, very uh, distributional focus, and that is to say, you know, everyone has a right to be able to produce the food they need to essentially survive, if not to, to thr thrive and flourish. You know, how do you take that forward? And also you're then saying, well, look, you know, we have to think about this in terms of a more collective approach, not just winner takes all or not just based on a market system where the highest bidder can gain access to resources. So big questions there that really do go to the heart of many of the Waterland and Ecosystem Programme concerns about impact on, on the poorest and also on the environment. As I said, the right to water for food was new to me, so I wanted to know more. This isn't a right to clean drinking water, for example. It's not about water for direct use. It's a right to water for the crops you want to grow and eat. Alan Nickel. The, you know, the difficulty is then, you know, where, where are the boundaries to that right? You know, where do you say, OK, there, that, that there's too much water being used in that particular agricultural system? So where do you then say, you know, there's a right to, say, water, efficient water for agricultural production, you know, a, a right to using water efficiently? Because you can't say there's a right to agricultural water and then find that it's just a free-for-all in, in sort of splashing water over fields with poor irrigation, um, and, and with all the kind of economic environmental bads that that can generate, including salinization, loss of soil fertility, etc. So it's a careful kind of structuring of this concept, which I think needs to then um, take place. And that's where I feel the report could, could have lifted the debate a few more levels, because there's undoubtedly a right to to food and nutrition security and avoidance uh, of harm because you haven't got access to food. And if, you know... The, the right to water to help enable that right is, is a sort of supporting or a subsidiary right. Um, I think a very, very important debate needs to be had about the implications going forward.
That's a discussion we have to have, and it's barely begun. But let's go back now to large-scale land acquisition and water. How does that affect the right to water for food? Well, one of the things you hear is that a big investor will make better use of the water than thousands of smallholder farmers. If that's true, it may be because large-scale agriculture can afford to invest in good irrigation equipment. However, from the point of view of food and nutrition security, it might be better to invest in smallholder farmers. Tim Williams. The evidence available from research shows that small-scale irrigation could be as equally efficient as large-scale production. But in terms of productivity or efficiency defined as output per unit area, there is evidence that small firms may even outperform large-scale firms depending on the level of effort put into it. So it's not always the case that large-scale agriculture is good. The real problem is that once they've leased the land and, in many cases, displaced the people who were there before, the incoming investors do nothing with the land they've acquired. Right now, only a very small fraction of the land acquired is actually being put into productive use by many large-scale investors. And of course, there are many reasons for that. Um, one is just the lack of technical know-how and being overwhelmed by the actual practical implementation of a large agricultural investment. And bearing in mind, most of these investors are not actually people with agricultural knowledge. They're coming in simply because they have the money and they have uh, the, the resources to mobilize people. So when they come in, they find out that, well, it's not that quite as straightforward as we thought. So uh, a large chunk of the land is left uncultivated. It's, it's quite damaging in the sense that when you have a piece of land that is leased out for 50 years, and for the first five years, six years, nothing is done, that is productive land being taken out of production, which could have been otherwise utilised by other people. So you have land doing nothing, water effectively going to waste, and small farmers elsewhere who may not have enough water for their crops. Is there anything that can be done? In principle, it depends on how the land is acquired. If the land is acquired through the state, there is a possibility, because in some of the contracts we've seen, there's always a clause that... um, Although the lease is given for a given period of time, say 25 years or 50 years, uh, midway or along the line, they could come back and say, let's review uh, the performance of this investment. In cases where land is acquired through private land owners, uh, it's, a, it's a foregone deal. Unless the government intervenes, it's almost impossible to renegotiate. One of the things that Tim Williams' research has made clear is that there needs to be a lot more openness and transparency about large-scale leasing, so people know what's going on and can think about water as well as land. Because as far as growing things is concerned, land without water is useless. But how to get people to pay more attention to water for food and nutrition security? Alan Nichols says a different set of water rights has already shown the way. Um, I think take a leaf out of the water and sanitation world, that's my feeling. Because, you know, the 1980s was, the, was a decade of, of water and sanitation, the UN decade. Um, slogan, water for all. Of course, there wasn't water and sanitation for all because the UN and everyone else realised that the problem was 
well, it was exacerbated by the debt crisis, but it was also a problem of turning rhetoric into realities, right? Wash became a kind of household term for doing something important in development to prevent disease uh, transmission, to, you know, to prevent child diarrheal deaths, etc., morbidity, mortality. Wash became the key concept. Wash, in case you missed it, stands for water, sanitation and hygiene, which is clever stuff. And it did prove to be a great rallying cry. In agricultural water, there isn't an equivalent. And so you have this disparate community of people concerned about irrigation, small-scale irrigation, large-scale, etc., about rainwater harvesting, about, you know, all these different areas. What I think is important is to take this narrative into... or conceptualise a narrative that generates um, a movement for change. So, OK, at the end of the meeting, I mentioned this, this idea of water-smart agriculture. We have climate-smart agriculture. We kind of know what that means. But you take that down to a farmer at a local level and say, hey, you, you know, you need to think about climate-smart agriculture. And they'll be slightly bamboozled by that. It's a slightly higher-order concept, climate-smart agriculture. No doubt important, but water-smart agriculture is really about the resource that farmers use and understand efficient use, effective use, using more water where that can disproportionately improve their um, food security, for example. You know, the water smart agriculture idea, I think, is one way of conceptualising agricultural water and possibly turning it into a movement for change. There's definitely a need for something like WASH for water and agriculture. But to me, water smart agriculture sounds a bit too much like climate smart agriculture to be much use. But maybe that something will focus on the intrinsic value of water. As Tim Williams said, people treat water as if it's free for the taking. Give it a value and people start to take it seriously. And ironically enough, large-scale land acquisition might make it easier to put a price on water. Well, that's the crux of the matter, really. If you neglect water, you are indirectly saying doesn't have any value. If I come in as a large-scale investor cultivating 50,000 hectares of land, growing rice or sugarcane, obviously I will have to put in irrigation systems that will be abstracting water in large volumes. And that means that unless I have a system to value the, the, the volume of water you're taking, you can take as, as much as you like and that is going to be to the detriment of someone else within the watershed, within the basin. So the good thing about large-scale investment is it's far easier to put in meters to measure the amount of water they're using than if you have a thousand small-scale farmers spread all over the place um, that would be difficult to measure how they use water. So the fact that water pricing or water valuation is also politically sensitive means that governments need to put in place pragmatic and politically feasible measures to ensure that you institute the kind of pricing model that allows you to be able to measure the trade-offs between efficiency and equity. You want the large-scale producer to use water efficiently, but you also want to make sure that you can, if you like, subsidize small-scale farmers which is the wrong word, uh, or maybe not the proper word, but to be able to ensure that since their utilisation is far, far lower than that of the, the large-scale investor, that you subsidise the cost of supplying water to them. 
let's just call it differential pricing. Differential pricing, that's the right word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a differential pricing system that can allow you to have a measure of efficiency as well as equity in the use of water. Tim Williams, ending this episode of the Thrive Podcast on Water Rights. My thanks to him and to Alan Nickel for taking the time to talk to me. And we've got some exciting news about the podcast. We're now listed in the iTunes directory, which makes it much easier for you to subscribe. You can do it from iTunes or in your favourite podcatcher app. Just search for Thrive and select the one from the CGIR research programme on water, land and ecosystems. You can find out more on our website at wle.cgiar.com slash thrive. You can also leave a comment on the website or tweet us using the hashtag ThrivePodcast. We'd love to hear from you. That's all for this episode. Until the next time, from me, Jeremy Chirfus, producer of the Thrive Podcast, thanks for listening. <laughs>